What's going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in. We have a wonderful Activist Sunday, and it's not just one activist with Miggy. We also have somebody else on that we're really thrilled to talk with. Welcome, Stacy. Hi. Hey. So glad oh, I met you back at Hempfest for the first time, and that was it was a weird time when I went to Hempfest because I really thought that everybody there was an activist. <laughs> I was just so like amazed. I'm like, man, Miggy, everybody that you know is an activist. How did how did that happen? Yeah, it's all that volunteering. You do a lot of volunteering for the movement, and that's awesome. And you volunteer for the prisoners, and that's where I, I met Stacy uh, at the prisoner tent of Hempfest. So, Stacy, can you introduce our uh, yourself to the audience? Yeah, and that's how I know Miggy, because Miggy keeps he keeps tabs on all us activists, so he reaches out to us always to see what he can do, or if he can write articles about us and yeah. help yeah. us like further our message, because we're all in this together. Well, that's right. There are so many <clears throat> scammers out there. This is the one thing I wanted to like start off with was like the reason why I know you and support you and and, and Kristen is like you guys were actually harmed by the war on drugs. So you 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 fuck someone's family up and now you're giving them enough energy and, and fire to like fight back. And uh, can you talk about what inspired you to become where you're at now? Yeah, and the more you act, the more you get into activism, you the more you learn how fucked up it is. Like the rabbit hole just keeps going further and further. <laughs> like, ah. Yeah, but like for um, you, you're, it's your family. I mean, like uh, before you went to uh, uh, Oaksterdam for school, uh, I, I you, did you know your uncle's story? Oh yeah, like me, me and my uncle were very close. Like he was one of my. He was one of the adults in my life that uh, that was like caring, would talk to us, like make sense out of things. Um, his place was always where the kids wanted to go because he had quads and, uh, you know, like. Now, when you say quads, are you talking about weed? No, like, uh, no, like, honestly, like he never like. Like we never as kids thought it would be cool to smoke pot. Like it was just like, it was so, we were raised around it, but it was like something adults did and everything. And I didn't even know, I did not relate like even in dare, I did not relate that the marijuana that they were talking about was the same pot that we smoke, like that people smoke in Kentucky in their joints. Like I really didn't put it together because I was around most of my life and I never saw it do all the things that they said it did. Yeah. Right. Like, talking about something else. Yeah, something on the West Coast. I was in Kentucky. Like something oh, like God. the West Side. Like I don't know what they did, but it's not the same. And I just didn't realize it was so major. It, um I mean I knew you could get pulled over and taken to jail for it and get pot charges and all that stuff. And then <clears throat> What happened? I uh like my great my great grandma lived on the other side of the farm. The town that I lived in was about an hour and a half from our family farm. And my great grandma lived on the other side of the hill. So you know, when we would go visit, that's where we would stay. Man. And everybody we'd always like me and my cousin and my cousin would always bring friends, but we'd always want to go to Uncle Gary's. And it was always like why do you always want to go over there? You don't need to be going over there. But we were what ignorant. What was Uncle Gary up to? If there's like, eh, don't go over to Uncle Gary's. Well, it was not like, I as a child, like, believe me, like, I like, my mom was like, court ordered pharmaceuticals. I watched her become an addict, alcoholic. Like, I can tell you the environment at my Uncle Gary's was like a family environment. Like, yeah. garden, flowers, like, just wholesome. Yeah. wholesome. Yeah, like, go play on the farm. Go play hide and go seek with the four wheelers and dirt bike. And, you know, like Wait, when that, was this? Uh, in the 90s, late 80s, uh, early 90s. I would go there like on the sun during like summer vacation, you know, time off school or whatever. And we didn't know, like, we always had to talk my granny and my great grandma into going over to Uncle Gary's. And we never knew what the big deal was. And well, well, let's get into what, the big deal. What the well, big deal was is that he grew his pot in his garden with his tomatoes and his corn and 
okra and everything else. And he grew it around his trailer with his flowers. Like he grew it like, uh, like, like it, it was a plant. Like, yeah. I feel like, it, like that's how I grew up. Like it was just there. Like you didn't yeah. make a big deal out of it. But I didn't know that that was until later. I didn't realize that that's why we always had to talk the grandparents into going to Uncle Gary's. Because the it grandparents was, knew. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you can talk to background, like with the grandparents, were, was it because they were against it or was it because they were afraid of the police like they should have been? Yeah, it was illegal. And my great grandma was very like, uh, she didn't get her driver's license till she was in her 60s because my great grandpa died. Like that was oh, the first wow. time she got it so she could drive to church. So oh, very God. Pentecostal, blah, blah, blah. Like it was still communicated that you know, pot was the devil's weed and, and all this, you know, yeah. Shit. Right. So, uh, and then, you know, like, you know, we were like, we did not like put all that stuff together. We just knew that my other family didn't really come to uncle Gary's and they always gave us kids a hard time for wanting to go over the hill and go hang out at uncle Garrett, like whatever. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so in ninety in nineteen ninety three, uh, I I had my daughter when I was sixteen. Okay. And um, my teachers came together to open a daycare at the high school. So, because I went to my home ec teachers, uh, they had talked about opening a daycare at the high school in like three to five years. So I oh, went and yeah. asked them, like, "Hey, if I have to drop out, I can come back." And they were like, ah, you can't drop out. So they really put things in action and really worked hard over the summer to open a daycare at my high school so I could keep going. You know, like my daughter started high school with me when she was six weeks old. And um, so then I got a scholarship, a national scholarship through Discover Card. And in uh -huh. June of uh, 1993, uh, I was in Washington, D.C., like, knowing that, like, yeah, you don't have to become a statistic, like, the American dream, like, the American dream, like, like, even I can do this, anybody could do this, like, I'm gonna have a future for my baby, like, all this stuff, Yeah. and then uh, got back from Washington, D.C., and then the a month later, my daughter turned one, and um, about a couple weeks before I was supposed to start my senior year on August, actually, actually a month to the day of when my daughter turned one, um, I was in the living room of the house I was at and playing with my daughter on the floor or whatever. And I heard like the news was in the back, you know, the TV was on in the background and it was said, uh, like coming up a story out of Bodhead, Kentucky of, um, police are forced to, you know, just like a little segment, but Broadhead, Kentucky, like, oh, that's my family, you know, like yeah. nothing in me still said Uncle Gary, you know, like nothing in me or whatever. So then after the commercial break or whatever, they start telling the story, you know, like uh, a crazed Vietnam veteran, uh, police are forced to uh, gun down a crazed Vietnam veteran. What, holding was Uncle Gary a Vietnam vet? Yeah, Purple Heart Vietnam vet. And that's how he felt. He felt like if they can make him go, they can draft him and go make him kill people in the name of a free country, then he better have a fucking constitution when yeah. he's on his own property. My family, that, that a uh, farm had been in my family for generations. My great great grandparents grew hemp on that farm before wow. prohibition. So, like the where my uncle Gary's trailer was used to be a hemp field. Wow! You know, like years back. So, um, he just felt like I mean, he was after Vietnam. He had got like he kind of got careless in his life. He was drinking a lot and riding around like he was being like careless on his motorcycle on purpose from what family said that he was just like a daredevil like you know going through 
to get a rush without knowing going through the side effects of war you know so you think he had like ptsd or something because of the the experience of vietnam how can you not have when you have to like we're not built to kill people we're programmed to yeah so like everybody like you can't run like yeah you can bury that shit and think you survived it but it you never know like when it's going to creep up on you and bother you or whatever like especially like during vietnam they were drafting people they weren't getting people that were like yeah i want to go kill people for freedom you know like they were telling people that i don't care what's in your heart you're gonna go kill people you know and and we're going to give you all these drugs and stuff while you're over, you know, well, like that, that's what I was going to ask. Like, Hey, do you think that uh, Gary found cannabis when he was over fighting in Vietnam? Oh, he said, uh, there was pot heroin, like everything. The soldiers were given everything. They were science experiments. That's what it was about. They were freaking testing stuff and they used our soldiers like to do it on. And that's why so many Vietnam families that they're still finding like illnesses in not only their children, but their great grandchildren from the chemicals that they were exposed to in Vietnam. Like that shit's real. Like that stuff doesn't go wet. Like that's what was happening. So anyway, my uncle Gary was like big after the war, like he got in a very bad car wreck and, um, or motorcycle wreck in Ohio and my family i don't know if there's anything that's like a is there any such thing as a good motorcycle wreck right well right so he was pretty banged up broke like mostly every bone in his body and he was already jacked up from having shrapnel you know from war did he get like what did they give him like straight up heroin not heroin but like opioid based painkillers i don't know the details of that because i was a kid but i know that he was on a lot, you know, before the wreck, he was abusing alcohol a lot. And then he got, uh, they took him from Ohio to my family farm where my great grandma and my granny, um, took care of him while he was in a full body cast and all that jazz. And my uncle Gary always said that that's, uh, that's when God got him right where he needed to, cause he couldn't move like whatever for like six months. Oh. And, uh, he had my great grandma like reading the Bible to him like every day. And then like people, you know, like that knew he, that what had happened to him. And, you know, he's a war veteran. So people were coming to my, you know, uh, my great grandma's house to read, you know, and pray. And so when did, he, uh, when did he really start to like to garden and by garden, I mean the weed. So after he recovered, after that rehabilitation, that's when he decided to stay on the farm. He never left the farm after that rehabilitation. He put a trailer where my great, great grandma's house used to be, put a trailer there, started living peaceful, helping my great grandma, growing his own food, growing his own medicine. He really felt like it was God's plan, you know, like, and that he had a right to do what he felt he needed to do to take care of him on his own property. So that led to him subscribing to high times and, you know, getting into, you know, he was good at growing everything. So, you know, when he got into like genetics and stuff, like, yeah, I grew really good pot. And, um, you know, that was my uncle Gary. Like he had little dishes of, uh, cannabis, like candy dishes, like in his, like on his coffee table. So wait, wait, wait. Uh, I'm sorry. He was doing infusions back in the early nineties, you know, he was doing genetics and breeding. Like he was like crossbreeding plants and he was playing with all the genetics and stuff. It's true. horticulture. But for the informed out there, I just want to let people know that your uncle Gary was, was Gary Shepard, uh, who was murdered. And, and, and it, when that was that state police that, that was the raid or was that federal? Yeah, so that's what happened. So my Uncle Gary, uh, on a Sunday, uh, a helicopter. So Kentucky spends, they're like the third poorest state in the country. And they spend like one of the most most money on helicopters finding pot. So uh, that morning, a helicopter came down. 
like my he, he was like swerving where he's like hitting the leaves off trees and stuff. And my uncle Gary waved him down and he landed the helicopter, came and talked to my uncle Gary. It was very casual, like um, hands on the fence talking. And the guy tells him, you know, the helicopter guy tells him that he's going to they're going to have to come and cut his plants down. And he says, over my dead body, I don't believe the way that you do. Wait a second. Like, uh, how many plants was Uncle Gary farming? Twelve. On the news and stuff, they kept saying he had over 55 plants. But there was 12 immature marijuana plants. And then there was, like, a baby. So, totally, you could say 13. But You were in, like, a garden. Like, a regular, like, self-providing tomatoes on one side, uh, potatoes on another, and then the cannabis in the middle. You know, just, it was a regular garden, right? It wasn't like yeah, he was... Like a tangle garden and it yeah. had like pot in it and then around the trailer you know there's like uh flower bushes and stuff you know like regular flowers and he had pot bushes growing around there and then uh um whatever so then he told him uh, you know over my dead body and then um under two hours later he was surrounded by police and helicopters and all that jazz and through everything that I've learned about PTSD and everything else, I feel that they were purposely doing that. So they came to kill him. They, they left, they could have arrested him right then. Like hands were on the fence. They were bullshitting like farmers do, you know, like they were bullshitting. He got in his helicopter and left Did not please my uncle Gary. Like, wait a second. Like, did he come out? Like you said they were bullshitting. Was he armed at the time? I mean, couldn't they have just arrested him then and taken his measly 12 plants? Well, you're right. Well, that's what I'm saying. They, when my uncle Gary said to come down and land in the field and then they had that conversation, like hands over the fence, like, you know, we're going to have to come and cut down your plants. And he's like, under my, you know, over my dead body, I don't believe the way you do. And when he said that, the officer left. And then um, my Uncle Gary knew, like, he told my baby cousin, like, whatever happens today, know that it's the truth. Whatever happens today, know that it's the truth. And then he, like, you know, he had his feelings. So he was, like, being my uncle, he was just thinking of things that he wanted to do with my baby cousin before they hauled him to jail or killed him. And so he like taught him how to nail, you know, nails into wood. He like on the porch or whatever and played and tinkered around on the truck. You know, that was broke down. He was just spending time with my baby cousin that was four. And then um, what, what they were doing while my uncle was playing with, you know, spending time with my cousin, they were blocking the roads a mile and, you know, a mile each way. And then they brought in all these uh, cop cars or whatever and um, helicopters or whatever. And after seven hours, you know, and I believe that that's why they were doing there. I mean, they were stalking my family for seven hours. When they first got there, the uh, my Uncle Gary tried to load Mary Jane up with Jake in the car. And it was the police. Wait, uh, I, who was Mary Jane that they were trying to load in the car? My baby cousin's mom. Okay. So it was my Literally uncle Gary. Named Mary Jane. Yeah, isn't that funny? It's God stuff. Mm. So like, uh, so uh, yeah. So it was my uncle Gary, Mary Jane, and baby Jake. Like they, my they tried to leave. The cops said wouldn't let them pass the gate. And then ah crap! Uh, I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean to like take you out. I meant to go to that. Um, so they just they would they're they're later. also keeping people on the location. So they aren't letting anybody that's you know a minor or a, a woman get out. Right. And then my aunt at one time, like like in the sixth hour, my aunt tried to sneak out the back gate so she could run to my great grandma's through the woods. And she was stopped by officers and you know, forced back in the gate. So to me, they were just making sure that they had that excuse um, because there again, I was in Georgetown, Kentucky, playing with my kid and it comes on the news like police are forced to gun down, you know, a veteran garden is marijuana crop. 
And when I looked at the TV, like, cause it got my attention, you know, like they showed my uncle Gary's face and that's how, that's how like I went, I was like, Oh shit, they're fucking up. That's my uncle Gary. Like they're showing the wrong Vietnam veteran from Broadhead, Kentucky. Like it didn't register that it could have been my uncle because I, you know, like it didn't register with me until, uh, they showed an aerial and I was like, that is our farm. Like, what the fuck? Did they just kill, did it kill my uncle today? And then, so I'm watching and then they interview a cop, like one of the cops and, uh, he comes, you know, he's telling the reporter, um, and this is before I've talked to my family or anything. They, he tells the reporter that my uncle Gary comes out of his trailer like this and, um, they had to do what they had to do, whatever. And immediately when that police officer did that with his arms, like it punched me in the gut so bad. I had to run and go freaking get sick because I knew something really bad, really bad was wrong. Like not only was my uncle dead, but they were lying. Cause my uncle from Vietnam, he couldn't, he couldn't do that or that no matter what he could. And I knew from hugging. Uh, and sorry, we kind of have like a little delay, so I have to mute you for a moment. But like when you say like, again, first, I can't believe that they killed him over 12 plants. But and you were just for the people that are wa- like for the people that are watching on the radio at home. Uh, she was basically making the, the, the motion as if you were shouldering a rifle with either your right or your left hand. Uh, and so why wouldn't Gary be able to shoulder a rifle? Because he was filled with shrapnel in Vietnam on his left uh, side and elbow. Like his elbow, he had, he couldn't go more than like this with his left side. And then because of the wreck and stuff, like he he couldn't. The wreck was the, uh, the, the, motorcycle. the motorcycle wreck after Vietnam. So his body did not, his body limited him in a way that he would not, I knew just being his niece, like. But Uncle Gary couldn't come out of a trailer like that. And it was like, they killed my uncle. Like, I didn't know what was happening and, you know, how to calm down before I talked to my family. And that's all it was like. They murdered Gary, you know, like that was my family as the news is going crazy, acting like he was holding my family hostage. My aunt was grazing the head with a belt bullet. So in the seventh hour, they demanded that he came to the fence and talk to them. And he picked up his rifle and held it up in the air. And he started walking towards the fence. They had National Guard uh, drug task force hidden in the tobacco field and the farm next door. How many bullets? The fatal bullets were nine. He He was filled with bullets. But the fatal bullets were the ones that went in his heart and in his head. Wait a minute. Okay, so we've gotten now at least two people that have been shot. Somebody was grazed. Do we have any, uh, how many total bullets were shot and how many people were there against him? A lot. Probably like at least 20 officers, um, a handful of National Guard hiding in the tobacco fields. And I think there was three helicopters involved. So what they were doing for seven hours, they knew he was a Purple Heart Vietnam veteran and they were trying to put him in a PT. They were wanting him to shoot and he never did. The autopsy report showed that he died with his hands in his air because bullet holes went through his uh, armpits. And um, they said an autopsy report wasn't admissible in court. And um, they were very adamant that it was a pro-police state and a pro-police court. Um, uh, so then this means that you know now you're in court. So this has to be after he's been laid to rest, of course. So a couple of things that I'm wondering, like, A, did he ever shoot anything? And then, B, did you guys go ahead and shoot uh, sue the state? Why, he was playing with my cousin. Like, he was spending as much time with my cousin as he could. His shotgun was on the side of the trailer until like the last couple hours when things started getting intense. Then he had a metal chair sitting there, just like sitting there. And his gun was beside him. It wasn't even in his hands forever. Like he was just sitting there. He did not want them 
that's what he kept saying. You're not coming in here, especially with my family. And, you know, of course that pissed him off when he wouldn't let, when they wouldn't let Mary Jane and Jake leave. Um, you know, he didn't know they were trying to use it as a kidnapping or a hostage situation. Maybe what did you say? Oh, I was just saying, let's not forget that your, your, your baby cousin, Jake, uh, uh, you know, who's, they forced a child and a woman to be there while they shot at somebody and then they're still at the, in a trailer, uh, I believe so. Right. Oh man. My cousin wasn't even four feet away from my uncle Gary when they put a concussion grenade, they fired concussion grenades at his feet. And as soon as they did that, the cops in the front filled him full of bullets. My aunt, a hostage was grazed in the head with a bullet. And my four-year-old baby cousin, the other hostage, uh, they were being held hostage by the cops. Yeah. But um, he was covered so bad in his parents' blood, they didn't know if they shot him until they cleaned him up. They didn't know if they shot my baby cousin in the whole mess. And um, all this was over them spotting some, you know, a few pot plants. But it was more than that. They knew that my uncle was very, you know, adamant about his rights and right. and all that stuff and, you know, didn't give two shits. He felt that he had every right to believe what he wanted to believe on his own property. And he was willing to challenge that. That's what he kept saying. That's what he kept communicating. Like he wanted to have a conversation with him. You know, he wanted that moment to exercise his religious freedom on his private property and he also had a second amendment right at his home to to protect himself against foreign and domestic freaking people like coming at him right so um and i believe that they were trying they were doing my uh second cousin was a plain, a trained kentucky state police negotiator Mm-hmm. And he was at the roadblocks trying to get down to talk to Uncle Gary because, you know, heard all that stuff on the scanner and shit. And they wouldn't let him through. They told him this does not concern you. Oh, my God. And that was his cousin. And um, and he's a trained negotiator. Like, uh, do you do they, we, uh, one question I'd have and like, you know, I'm trying to balance the, the reverb that we're getting on that. So, you know, just be careful when you're asking questions, Biggie. Uh, well, was he selling any of the weed? You know, do we know that if he was actually turning this into making money for the property? I don't know. I, uh, everybody has always said that he did like, he didn't sell weed. He gave it away. And that was the problem. He gave good weed away. And who knows if he gave coffee cans of weed to people and they went and sell, sold it and it got on the streets and, you know, like, um, if you really know anything about this drug war, like you do learn that you don't get away with selling pot in this country unless a police officer has made a dime off it first. And so I'm sure that, you know, it probably got, you know, like I, like my uncle Gary gave pot away all the time, but never like as far as what we always like never sold it. And, um, yeah. So, Miggy, what were you trying to ask? Well, I was gonna say her 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 uncle's story reminds me, and, and Stace should be familiar with this, but the uh, the Rainbow Bridge Farm in uh, Michigan, that where people who as citizens, and that's what with marijuana and cannabis, you know, uh, everybody's a lawyer, right? We all think we know our rights and and believe in the American Constitution and all this other bullshit that we're fed, but just for a judicial or for the uh, for the cop side to shoot you, you know. Uh, uh, this is the failing that we've been why we've been doing this is because we give way too much power to people with guns. And, yes, and do. Badges. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So the whole thing was pretty much laughed out of court Why my family got harassed a lot. I mean, it did bring, you know, like all the activists, you know, my family, we were in shock, you know, my baby cousin was going through his stuff. So, uh, he tried starving himself. Like he made like, at four years old, he was making deals with God that he wasn't going to eat until he brought his dad back, you know, like that kind of stuff. So he was like starving himself and he quit talking. Like it was really hard on him. And, um, uh, a lot, it brought like a lot of rallies and, and things to Kentucky. Gatewood Galbraith 
and Lynn Wilson um, with Hemp Rock Radio. Gatewood Galbraith was a big hempster in Kentucky. And they brought, you know, the noise to Kentucky when my uncle was shot and a lot of that. But after a couple of years of the, you know, once the court case was over, everything died out. And I think they kind of like take that for advantage. They know things are going to die out as soon as they get into court. But it's it sounds like it really amped up your uh, activism. However, it sounded like you were already an activist before this happened for teenage mothers. And then after this, did that really begin your cannabis activism? No, not really. I was like, I was having a hard time staying in Kentucky. Like, uh, I'm a peaceful person, but I was having challenges, like even getting pulled over on the highway speeding, you know, like I wanted to fight. I wanted to fight that Kentucky state. He was hard, you know, like I had to learn. And there was a lot of other stuff going on too. Like I said, with my mom and Kentucky, um, my uncle Gary, like I, you know, got through my senior year, started college and I made it nine months and uh, I decided to take my daughter and move to Arizona because um, I just felt Kentucky was fucked up. Like I thought it was Kentucky. Like, ah, Kentucky is just like, I don't even know. Like I can't raise my daughter in this. Like she deserves better. So Man. I went out to Arizona where my little sister and my stepdad were and raised my daughter, joined corporate America, you know, bought a house. Like, you know, I was always the one that, you know, had a little, little pot, you know, like I always made sure I had a little pot and I would share pot and I'd get people, Oh, smoke a bowl. It will help, you know, yeah. like that. And then in, um, 2010, my daughter graduated high school, 2011, I run off to Oaksterdam university this is 18 years after my uncle's been killed and a week after they opened the museum at Oaksterdam university. And when we're there, they tell us, we just opened the museum. It's not complete. Go check it out. I go to the museum and there's a big memorial to my uncle Gary. That's crazy. You know, and like I, I wanted to get into a couple of the comments because the comments are coming in. I mean, it's really resonating with a lot of people, but it's, you know, doesn't this channel shun the black market? That's true. Like we really are about legalizing it and making sure that you keep it legal, but that's mostly to undo the problems of the black market. But we also, I mean, we're providing this analysis and, and insight from the actual drug war. And that's why we're on. And that's why we're thrilled to have you on. But, you know, it's something that it really did hurt people. And then it's just swept under the table and, and then it just kind of gets lost in court and then it just keeps going. Yeah. Well, that's what I learned at Oaksterdam is because I had stashed all this stuff for 18 years to survive and kick ass as a parent. Like I had to put Kentucky behind me and all of that. And then I go to Oaksterdam so I can learn how to grow pot and make shit out of pot. We had just got medical marijuana in Arizona and I'm staring at my uncle and that whole experience comes back. And <clears throat> then I look around at this memorial and it's uh, all these other memorial memorials to people that have been killed by cops due to pot. And some of them, like the cops had even gone to the wrong addresses and shot old people and children because they're at Literally the wrong innocent Collateral damage for, like by the government on its own people because of a plant that's killed absolutely. Yeah. So then you go to class and you're learning the history, the science, the politics and all this shit. And you're learning what they've known that this plant can't hurt anyone since at least the 70s, you know, you learn the truth about prohibition in the 30s and learn it was all bullshit with bankers, cor you know, corporate leaders and politicians in the beginning, all worried about freaking money. And then at the 70s, we had science on this stuff showing that it wasn't not only safe or not toxic, but it was magic for a lot of situations. And we were keeping it away from people while we were continuing to kill people and prison people. And then like, the more you learn, like Osterdam's teaching me everything my uncle ever said about pot was true. And then showing me all this other stuff. So then I had to wrap my mind around like, even them court ordering my mom onto pharmaceuticals and alcohol. And 
even my dad dying of cancer in 2005, all of that, like I had to regrieve every death in my life because I realized the same, the same energy and bullshit that went to my family farm and killed my uncle was also responsible for my mom's death, my dad's death, all these deaths. Like it was just like all the, like, you know, all my friends, people I worked with that had friends with cancer and MS and like Paul R. Montano and Oaksterdam, he goes through all the science. There's been science for decades. There's been studies done for decades on all these where are these studies being done these studies aren't being done in america these studies most of them come out of israel because it has been illegal to study any benefits for cannabis in this country since at least 1970 and probably before with the the uh, law that we had before the controlled substances act well besides the the positive healthy aspects of it and, and you know there's the the damage of the loss of life like your uncle but also the collateral damage like your your your, your cousin's ptsd you know, I couldn't imagine being four year old and, and just one being shot, you know, a concussion grenade, uh, your dad being shot right next to you, you know, family blood on you. That it's horrible. Oh, my, my, my cousin is one of my biggest heroes. Cause he, he, you know, he's very smart, like, but, um, he struggled like golly, you know, and that's, I guess that's how we feel like, if we can do it, anybody can do it. Like I drive a bus around the country. I get pulled over all the fucking time. I have to educate police officers all the time. Like I sign up for that knowing that I'm going to have to do my own self-care, my own practices and stuff. So I can have those effective conversations with police officers. Like I've been pulled over on the bus while Mary Jane and Jake are crying and breaking knowing that they're having freaking meltdown on the bus because they are so afraid that the cops are going to come in and my aunt was so afraid that my baby cousin was on a bus saying the same things that my uncle gary always did about a plant and every time we got pulled over that fear pulled her whole body that we were going to get shot and, you know, like I would always have to tell her, me having no, like, cause I know what happens too. Like I had to like check my own fears again and again, which was good practice, but I had to check my own fears and look at her while she's having a meltdown and be like, don't worry, Mary Jane, they are not going to get on this bus. They are not going to get on the bus. So like this, I put it up on the screen. Uh, so this is the Canna bus. Why don't you explain to us a little bit about um, how did you get on a bus? Besides from the obvious, I went through the door. Yeah. So after Oaksterdam, I what? Like it lit a fire under my butt. I went to Kentucky, got my cousin, took him to Oaksterdam with the, like other people. And we started educating everybody that we could about cannabis. That led to like people reaching out to me, wanting me to talk to their family members to see if I could get them open to cannabis. And I learned how like, wonderfully magic that is like uh heck yeah i'll go talk to your family i'll see what i can do and then that's beautiful all you have to do is share the truth and spend some time with people and if you get past that scary you know if you're able to get them more comfortable you can drop a couple drops in somebody's mouth or give them a piece of candy and witness miracles in front of your face you went but isn't it look isn't that so interesting that you're talking about stuff but then the thing that was keeping them really from enjoying it or like trying it is this per complete prejudice against that plant and you're saying no it's great and they're like no 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 no, i can't believe that it's so dangerous it's been told to me that it's it's poison yeah, so you just share the truth with them. Um, I used uh, a lot of the resources that Oaksterdam led me to, and then also uh, a documentary you can see on YouTube now, uh, 48 minutes long, uh, What If Cannabis Cured Cancer? And I bought hard copies of those. Like I had, uh, I don't know, five or six hard copies of those. And if people asked me to go talk to their family members, I would hand them that first. Like, can you ask? him to watch this first you know like just don't try to talk him into anything just ask him to love you enough like you're loving them you're worried about their health ask them to love you enough to to watch 48 minutes of video that's all they have to do and you'll never talk about it again 
<laughs> and then I would make it to where I would need my video and have to go pick it up so I could have that one-on-one -on -one nice. conversation. And then um, at the time we didn't have dispensaries in Arizona. So we had like a caregiver system and farmer's markets happening. We had grow rights then. So there was like a handful of caregivers that knew what I was doing. And every time they would see me, they would be like, Daisy, here, I brought you this, you know, and it might be a tincture, a bag of candy or whatever. And those little gifts, like they didn't have any idea. Those gifts were empowering me because every time I got called to go talk to a family, you know, somebody about pot, I had that in my bag. I had cream to rub on their body or a piece of candy for them to suck on or tincture. You know, we would do shots of tincture together. So, I, you know, to show them that I, it was nothing scary. And so all that activism, um, you know, like I just had like a lot of people that were like supporting my efforts, you know, like happy that I was doing what I was doing. And then uh, we started Canisense. So that was just like empowering people to educate, like helping people get education. So they were armed, you know, uh, with. So what is Canisense then? And then was the Canisense before the bus? And when did you get the bus? So we started Canisense and it was all about helping organize. Cause I was blown away. I didn't know that you, until I went to Oaksterdam, I didn't know there was organizations or meetings you could go to to help free the weed. So I thought if I didn't know, and I'm all about pot, then <laughs> we're not getting it out there that yeah. there's things that you could do to free the weed. Right. So I thought, take off of common sense. Yeah. So yeah. it just, yeah, yeah. Total take from common sense, can of sense. Um, Cause it is a you know, sensible thing to do for so much, like so many pro, you know, like that, to me, that was just like something we have to do. We have to eliminate cannabis from the drug war. Like Absolutely. that will address so many um, of the other issues that we have in this country is eliminating yeah, it right. altogether. Yeah. I, was, I was just talking uh, at a convention yesterday or a symposium by um, the American Pharmacological Society or something. I'd have to look exactly who I was speaking for. Uh, but, you know, that was what I would explain to them for a long time was that it has been there since 1970 and then i would explain to him about the part f of the controlled substances act where they they then studied it and they kept it there still and then they still kept it there and they keep and it's there today right now it's still there i don't get it you know but uh yeah like when you find out like what like and that's something that i learned then too that like what the federal government grows pot yeah. And ships 300 marijuana cigarettes to patients across Shitty the pot. Country. Not even good pot. And Shitty been, pot. Yeah. Yeah. And they've been doing it since before they killed my uncle and before my, you know, dad died of cancer and before, like, drive you crazy to learn that they're stuff. Like, like, when you learn about that uh, patent 6630507 that they got like 10 years after they killed your uncle, that you just be like, God fucking damn it. Jesus. Uh, like, how? So, like, I know, like, yeah, like, all these people that have to, like, we're raised now. And I can tell you that that's why I'm such a maniac is because we have got to stop letting children be affected about whether if they're, I don't care. I don't care if your parents decide to sling weed, grow weed, like, whatever. As a child, you are not, you do not control what your family is doing. So you should not be sentenced the rest of your life to suffer and deal with the consequences of the drug war coming into your family over pot because pot is not that major. Pot has never killed anyone. Pot's just a plant. It helps everyone. If somebody wants to grow that and make stuff to rub it on their bodies or consume it and feel better, they should be able to. They shouldn't have to worry about helicopters and guns and getting their kids taken away and all yeah. that when did you get the bus? When did you actually get the can of bus? I mean, I've seen it. it uh, I, I saw pictures. 2012. What's that? 2012. Yeah. yeah. So advocate, like, uh, yeah. So I got the bus. Um, it went up for sale. Like these, these two guys uh, built the bus in North Carolina and they were going to tour it until they ended can uh, prohibition. But they were uh, making plans to go to the Democratic convention mm -hmm. in North Carolina. And 
some crazy, like some crazy, that's a whole other story. But the owner of the bus got pulled over in Georgia. Um, you mean the owner of this bus would have been pulled over owner. in Georgia? This bus that has like pot smoking on it and the words cannabis freedom. It used to say the peace sign. Somebody driving that was pulled over in Georgia. You expect yeah, me to believe that? It used to look different. It used to just say uh, green bus tour for marijuana legalization and be bright green. But then we decided, like, we saw the way that legalization was, like, it's not about legalization. It's about ending prohibition. And, you know, legalization, you know, back in 2012, we changed the bus to Cannabis Freedom, or 2013 is when we repainted the bus. But we changed it to Cannabis Freedom because we could already see exactly what's happening now that legalization is just turning it over to the hand, the same hands that are bloody with cannabis prohibition on it. Like I have learned so many, like, you know, retired County attorneys and people connected to law enforcement are very involved in these legalization initiatives. They're getting licenses attached to their names or they're part of the businesses that the nonprofits are paying, you know, because the dispensaries and stuff have to be nonprofits. So that's what legalization is doing. I don't care how, I don't care if you make millions of dollars off pot, but people shouldn't be in prison for it. People shouldn't have to worry about getting their kids taken away for it or going to jail for it. No matter what they're doing. You know, yeah, it's, that's it's, just straight up getting shot because it's the 90s and they're trying to be tough on crime. That's terrible. Well, yeah. And once we got on the bus, so 18 years later, I'm realizing that they've shot and killed people before over pot. And then talk about my fire being lit even stronger. It was like 2012 uh, in Michigan. They killed another four year old son's dad over pot and he didn't even have pot. It was because a freaking mom, what, you know, it was a custody battle. So she knew she could use that as a game chip and say, he smokes pot, he has pot over there. So the cops came to take his son and he was like, you're not taking my son, I don't smoke pot. And they shot him dead in his front yard for not wanting to give his kid away. And like, that's bullshit. Like that's total, that should not be happening. That was, I think it was in 2013. But I was like, what? They are still killing dads in front of their four-year-old kids, even after we had 14 states of medical marijuana and we're working on freaking legalization. Like what? What? I mean, especially considering like you're talking about Michigan in 2014, when the F did Michigan get medical cannabis? And then they were still, and they hate that. And that comes up a lot because when, when people split up and there's so much jilt and then they have kids and I've seen people argue over dogs and fricking divorces, it's pathetic, but then they're going to use that. And then they're going to call the cops on their ex and they're going to use their usage of a plant, which is safer than cigarettes or alcohol or McDonald's to try to get like some type of visitation right for their kid. It's just pathetic. And then they, the law enforcement kills the guy. Yeah, that's why it aggravates me so much. Like, I appreciate legalization, you know, like every every step moves us in the right direction. But it does piss me off that a lot of these people with this money to make these legalization bills and stuff, they are not like making sure that they have parental protections and stuff in there. Like, are you kidding me? Like, why do we have to fight for you to make sure that, you know, do it would be better for their pocketbooks because they have no, I do because I talk to a lot of people. There are so many people that would be smoking pot right now. They would have so many more customers if they didn't have so many people that were worried about what would happen to their kids. You know, even if it's legal, yes, exactly what you said in a custody situation or whatever, you know, being worried that that's going to be used against them in court or custody issues. And so many people are choosing to stay on their pharmaceuticals or stay, you know, things that they know they shouldn't be doing. That's so sad. That's cruel and unusual punishment for someone to be suffering off the treatments that they're using to heal themselves. And they know that there's a plant and it's all over TV now. So I'm everybody else. And you can't 
use it, even if it's legal in your state, because you're worried that your child can still get taken. I know that's, that's pathetic. And then, and so people go to jail or they die, which also sucks. And then you got involved in another one called Freedom Grow. When did you get involved in Freedom Grow? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, Freedom Grow uh, is ran by Stephanie Landa and Dina Bronner teamed up to do uh, Freedom Grow. Stephanie Landa, she spent federal time in prison for pot. And when she got out, she just uh, was all about advocating to like write the prisoners and send them cards. Like she knew from being a prisoner herself, like how lonely it was and everything in prison. So she just rallied for people to like, don't forget our prisoners. Yeah. And, um, then we teamed up like Canisense and Stephanie Landis LPOP teamed up with the Human Solutions for a while. We helped the Human Solution that provides well, uh, Stacey, support and stuff. Go ahead, Miggy. Miggy, ask them. I would say, well, when, how I met Stacy, I came across and, and know about Stacy. Uh, she uses her magical bus to not just raise awareness about the plant, but she's also helped raise awareness about people going through prosecution. Uh, like you were just saying with the human solution, I know you teamed up with them. I think you started in California. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really sure, but they came up from California, worked their way through Washington and then ended up in, in uh, uh, Montana to do court support for Chris Williams. Um, and uh, at that time, I, Kristen Floor, whose dad, I believe he already passed. Did he already pass at that time? Yeah, he passed in August of uh, 2012, and then we did his uh, Chris Williams court support in February 2011. Yeah, so I'm, so this whole situation of raids in 2011, and then Stacy and this magical group of people, they picked up people along the way. They raised donations, and the whole point was is just to raise awareness of for for court support. You know, these little. Uh, dominoes these little back things that we can do to help uh besides policy but to show up and just say hey we don't agree with this guy going to jail and these are the things that stacy's has done and has made a difference i think in cases just like contacting prisoners while they're locked up you know you let them know that they're still a human being that they're somebody and and, and that, that's stacy i think you you've done quite well just doing that just fighting the prohibition on that human aspect you know I'll say that's, I mean, that's what we do in the bus. We just tell everybody the truth. So yeah, if we're going to court support, like we get to tell everybody along the way, like what we're doing and why we have information to give. And, um, it is like, I've got to witness the shockwave. So like, you know, like I can't do everything that is needed to do, be done and prohibition, but I can do my part and my. Yeah. I mean, I really, really thank you for doing that part of that and all that, but, um, I, what do you think about like all these people that are actually making the money off of it? What are, what more can the people that are actually, when they go and they buy those grams, people are getting legal, legal money. I mean, the it's, it's quasi legal, but how should they be allocating that to the victims of the drug war? The easy thing that they could be doing is donating to nonprofits like freedom grow at freedomgrow.org, Like, so they raise money specifically for commissary for our pot prisoners. So our, you know, like prison is like slave labor, like it's slave labor, like, and it's very expensive to be in prison if you have no money. So Freedom Grow, a hundred percent of their donations go right to the prisoners' books, and then a couple times a year, um, you know, with the goals to do it every, be able to do it every month. Yeah. But a couple times a year, being able to send money orders to also like the kids, the family members that are struggling because their loved ones are in prison and then can do clemency. Um, you can support can do clemency and see how you can help like submit clemency petitions for our prisoners and help them be like an outside advocate for them while we work to get them out of prison. Um, Parents for Pot is doing their annual uh, um, Christmas holiday drive right now. And Parents for Pot, they're all about the kids of the drug war. So kids that are, that are um, you know, whose parents, they have to put their parental rights on their line, whether like prohibition is still happening. I don't care what the laws are, but like uh, kids that are getting help with cannabis and also kids that, uh, whose 
got family members in prison and stuff are suffering from the drug war in one way or another. That's um, great. The thing that is really cool about these types of these are all nonprofit community outreach opportunities that are valid, that go to help end the drug war, at least uh, reduce its pain while it's still here with us. And in the cannabis applications in Illinois, at least, and hopefully in the other ones, they are starting to talk about, well, what is your community outreach plan and why the heck wouldn't your community outreach plan include the community if you're going to be profiting off of this this plant, why aren't your community outreach going to the ones that have been hurt, especially in Illinois, where you get the 20 percent of your points for being a victim of the cannabis prohibition? If you are arrested for cannabis, you get a leg up on other applicants to get a, a license in cannabis. And why aren't you paying it back to them? Right. So, yeah, so, um, supporting efforts that are. Because we like when I go to like the high times cups and stuff, I work the lines like everybody's standing and waiting in line, like to get letters signed and make sure they know. And it's cool because all these young people, it's really neat to see like all walks of life of like the young people. They care. They give a shit, but they don't know. Like a lot of times I like they're react like what people still go to jail for pot. What? What? Like, oh, and we're standing in line to go in there and smoke a bunch of weed today. That's fucked up. So it's been cool to hear the comments that the young people, but it takes, it takes us to go out there and make sure that they know what's going on. So they understand, so they understand what legislation to support or what other things need to be done as they grow up, you know, as hopefully we just end it soon. No, that's perfect right there. I mean, re outreach is important for this. You know, it's, it's the back end of fighting prohibition, I think. You know, there's people who are doing laws, and then there's people like you and me who are just trying to get names and monies on books and, and just trying to help people out. Uh, you know, it's been an hour, and I really yes. should. <laughs> but then I, I do want to thank Stacy, and I want totally. to make sure that we understand how people can get in touch with her. We were sharing some of the websites there's the freedomgrow.org and where else can people, how, how is the bus? Is it running? And can, where can people give money to the bus? Um, well, I have a GoFundMe and so you can, you can uh, look up the cannabis freedom grow our uh, tour uh, GoFundMe. Um, you can find it on our, our Facebook page, uh, Cannabus. <laughs> and, um, CannasenseCampaign.org. Uh, I'm going to be redoing the website. So right now it's just directed to the Cannabis page. Awesome. Well, awesome. thank you so much for uh, coming out and taking an hour out of your day to help uh, us understand your activism more. And, you know, it's why we're kind of here. We have to, there's, there's so many channels that are out there about doing really glitzy. Oh, here's how the grows work. Here's how, how you can maximize your yields or do all these other things. Or like, here's, I mean, we, we have a business show. Like every week we talk to somebody in the industry. That's the goal. And, and to, to understand the problems that they have and then the legal and then the, uh, the compliance issues that they have to jump through. But we can't lose the forest for the trees. There's people that are out there that have been murdered and people that have really been harmed. And we have to put them, at, you know, bring the focus back to them, you know. Yeah, we also have to change laws so people are protected to do whatever they feel they need to do for their health at the privacy of their own home. Damn right. I mean, like if I take I take cannabis to help me avoid getting cancer, to help me avoid having a lot of problems that I would prefer not to get. And why isn't that my right as a, as a human, as an American? I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Why do we have to fight so hard to get the truth? Like the truth, free justice. Oh, like, are you kidding? Have you seen what some people like, have been through? Have you heard of the African Americans? My God! Yeah, yeah, like the cat's out of the bag, and we still are freaking fighting a freaking justice for people. I can't believe people are still in prison for pot. Like, I, I don't care what if you're Democratic, Republican, or whatever. In my opinion, ever since that patent, ever since like the seventies, every president of the United States has been a piece of shit for keeping people in prison for pot 
and letting people suffer over cancer, MS, lupus, all those things. And then some are becoming millionaires now. They're letting people be in prison for pot and Cresco and GTI are publicly traded stocks and truly. And it's not, that's nothing against them, but I'm saying you have to stop that. You can't put these two. And then that's the safe banking act thing as well. And, you know, after that, we'll wrap it up. We're yeah. almost at a whole, whole hour here, but the safe banking act is just essentially telling the banks, you can go ahead and lend to them, but it's still illegal which is so flipping stupid when you think about it from like a legislative thing. We have a law that says you can't do it. And then we have another law that says, eh, just just, just don't pay attention to it. Well, you know, Stacey Schertz, the epitome of all this, if you look at Lance Gore's uh, incarceration, Woo! you know, from, from a recreational legal state, and he's still serving time. There are pounds still out there. serving time pounds in the store out now when he was going through trial i walked down the street to a rec shop and smoked the joint that same fucking day like where is our, our justice or is not it's, it's like we live in bizarro world it's it's it, we are in corporate the place that we live is a salvador dolly painting it makes no sense and it needs to quit amen all right well with that tune in next week and don't forget to like and subscribe